0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going we're gonna to look at, at the book of Nahum over the next three weeks. Um, it's just three chapters, so we're covering like, larger portions of the text. And um, Nahum is a, is a book filled with wrath. So if you grew up with hellfire and brimstone preaching, buckle up. It's going to be fun. All right. So it is three chapters of just God's wrath. And, and I want you to see um, first of all, it's poetic. And so um, when we look at the, at the genre of the book, um, there's a lot of repetition. And so if it feels like God's just saying the same thing over and over again throughout the whole book, it's because he is. Um, so I don't want you to get lost in the poetry or the repetitious nature of the book. Um, one of my first classes I took in seminary was Hebrew poetry, and I loved studying it. Um, the rhyme and the rhythm of Hebrew poetry and how God inspired that to uh, communicate that to his people to make it memorable is really cool. But in English, for us English speakers, it's lost on us a little bit. So we lose a little bit of, we lose all the rhyme, we lose a little bit of the rhythm um, and, the, and the parallelism that we, we have in the original Hebrew language. And so as we We go through, uh, try to hang with us, but um, what you see is a very important story um, of a city called Nineveh. We've named the sermon series Legacy Lost because some of you may have heard of the city of Nineveh. Uh, from a guy named Jonah, another one of the 12 minor prophets. Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach repentance, and we see Nineveh actually repent. uh, But then by the time we get to Nahum's day, which is about 150 years later, we see that Nineveh has just went back to their old ways. Uh, The legacy of repentance that existed in their great-grandparents had been lost by the time we get to Nahum's day. And so um, in this first chapter, Nahum, the prophet of God, is going to introduce um, several things. We're going to meet Nineveh. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to see Nineveh meet God as Nahum describes who God is. And thirdly, God's God's going to meet Nineveh, and God's going to foretell. Uh, what wrath he is going to be bringing to the city. And, and so what I want you to see in, in, when we look at the justice of God and the wrath of God, there's a, there's a tension that I, I actually kind of want our church to kind of rest in for a little bit. Is, and that, that tension is how do we differentiate between God's grace and mercy and love versus his justice and his jealousy and his wrath? Um, And I want you to see that really those things are not in contradiction to one another. They are in unison within the character of God. Um, And even in a book that's fully um, about God's wrath, we see his patience and his long suffering and his justice, which are the good attributes of God. Okay, Let's meet Nineveh first. So we meet Nineveh initially in chapter one, verse one. Uh, This is the only non-poetic verse in the whole book. And Nahum begins, it says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, oracle, the word he uses here is masal in Hebrew, and it means a burden. Uh, The most literal translation of it is the burden of the prophet Nahum. Um, It's similar to when Jeremiah says that the word of God is like a fire that's shut up in his bones, and he's weary of holding it in, and he has to preach the word. That's the description that a lot of the prophets give, that God inspires an oracle, a prophecy, a message through them, and they have to speak it and write it. And so prophecy, um, here's a good working definition of prophecy for you as we spend several weeks Really, the whole summer in prophetic books. Prophecy gives present exhortation based on divine revelation. Okay, need you to remember that, so I'm going to repeat it. Prophecy gives present exhortation as a result of divine revelation. Um, it also often foretells the future. Part of the divine revelation, um, especially in the Old Testament, is a foretelling of the future. And so the prophets of God um, have, been, have, have been given a revelation of what the future holds, and so they give a, a present exhortation in result of that. Now Nahum comes from relative obscurity. Uh, we don't know really anything about Nahum other than what he wrote here. Uh, we know he's a prophet. He's not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know where... Uh, he was born, or when he was born, uh, we don't exactly know when he when he died. Um, the only thing we have is Elkosh, and Elkosh is not a city that's been excavated. Archaeologists haven't found a lot of record of Elkosh. It, it might not even be his hometown. It might be the clan that he belonged to, and they had called themselves the Elkosh. But whatever it is, we know it was obscure and not really prominent. And what what just from the beginning of the book, what I want you to see is that God uses very ordinary people and, and very um, obscure people to accomplish his mission. I think we see that as a small church in Milton, West Virginia. We see that God accomplishes great things through small people. Um, this is what God does because then he receives all the glory as a big, holy God. Amen. And so don't ever think that um, just because you're just a member of a church or just an attender or just um, just a, a redneck from West Virginia that you are not called to have a big impact and carry a big message to a world that needs to hear about Jesus. Now, we see an example of Nahum bringing good news to Judah while bringing a prophecy of destruction to Nineveh, okay? Now, you most likely know of Nineveh from, like I said, Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 You don't have to try to find it We'll have some verses from Jonah on the screen I want to review um, God goes to Jonah And he says in the beginning of the book of Jonah Arise, <clears throat> excuse me, go to Nineveh, that great city And call out against it For their evil has come up before me He tells Jonah at the time where Nineveh was was one of the most wicked and at the same time influential cities in the world. He tells Jonah, you need to go and prophesy to that wicked city that destruction is coming for them unless they repent and worship me. Jonah says, nope, ain't going to do it. Hate those people. All right. Um, uh, In Sally Lloyd-Jones and her book, uh, Kids Bible Book, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. One of my favorite lines is when Jonah goes to the dock to set sail, he says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. Um, He wants to go anywhere but Nineveh. He despises those people. They are the enemies of God's people. And, and, and so God tells him, go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction. And um, you guys might know the story. Um, a storm comes on his boat. He gets thrown over by his own request. He asks the sailors to throw him overboard because he knows that, that the storm is because of his disobedience. He's thrown into the sea. He thinks surely he's going to drown. And God sends a fish to save his life, swallows him whole. He lives in the belly of that fish for three days. The fish spits him out on the shore. He has a revival of sorts of, of his own spiritual obedience. And then he, uh, again, is told by God to go to Nineveh. We pick up in chapter three, verse three, where it says what Jonah did after living in a fish. If you live in a fish for a while, you're going to listen to Jesus. All right. So he says, uh, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So that means it took you three days to walk across the city. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he goes into basically the middle of the city. And he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, To the least of them. This is what God does in his remarkable salvation. He takes those who are enemies of him and he makes them friends of his. He takes Nineveh, the most wicked city on the earth, and he sends Jonah, his prophet, through lots of circumstances to go and preach repentance to them. And they actually repent. If if you know the story of Jonah, he, he himself can't even believe it. He actually gets mad about it. He can't believe that the whole city repents and the king calls for a great fast and everyone puts on sackcloth because of their sin. They acknowledge their sin and they repent before God. It says that they believed God. We have no reason to believe that this wasn't sincere. The word of God says that they believed him. And so they repent and it's, I mean, given the size of the city, it's one of the greatest revivals of all history. Jonah chapter 4 tells us how big the city is. God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, also much cattle. He's given us a figurative way of describing the city and their spiritual lostness. 120,000 people who don't know who the one true God is. And chapter 3 tells us they believe God and repent. And yet, in this greatest revival of all history somehow the message is lost just a few generations later. 120,000 people repented from the greatest of them to the least of them, it says, including the king, but their repentance didn't last for generations. Matter of fact, it didn't even last more than a couple of decades. Their legacy was lost, which should be a strong warning to us. And really the main theme of, I think, Nahum, what Nahum is communicating to us, that we need to make sure that we guard the good deposit of faith that's gifted to us in Christ that we teach it to our children those around us. Deuteronomy 6, 7, a verse that's in the hallway as we go back to our children's classrooms in this building. It says, you shall teach the law of God diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It takes intentionality for us to pass on our faith to our families. Um, one One of the favorite shows of the Bashams right now that we've been watching a lot, is called Tiny Creatures. Um, this is not a great blockbuster of a show, but, but my brain operates on about the same level as my kids. And so this is like a kind of a National Geographic type show. It follows um, spiders and mice and different little tiny creatures, as the name would indicate. And, um, and it, it, it creates a story as you follow them. And I watched an episode with Maya recently about um, a barn mouse or a field mouse. And it follows this mother mouse, and she's trying to survive, and all these predators are after and she's trying to take care of her kids and stuff. And, um, and, and they, they shared this interesting fact that just like blew my mind, um, that, that Mama Mouse here on this TV show um, was able to learn dangerous smells. And so when she would find herself in dangerous situations, she would remember the smells of that situation. And, and somehow in mice, God has um, in his sovereignty created them where they can actually imprint that information on their genetic code and their offspring learn it by, almost like by genetic osmosis that they can, they can remember or, or just inherently know that certain smells are dangerous. and um, So this led me on a rabbit trail of research using Google. And uh, there, there are lots of studies that see that maybe humans kind of do the same thing. And, and man, I thought, what if I could do that with the Bible? Wouldn't that be easier? Like, I wouldn't have to read my Bible to the kids. I could just be like, it's in my DNA. Y'all got it. You know the word of the Lord. It's in your heart. Like, um, <laughs> but that's not how God has given us. He's designed worship He's designed learning. He's designed discipleship to be an active thing, not a passive thing. And what that means for us as Christians is that, number one, we are to enjoy the action of discipleship. And secondly, that we are to put effort into discipleship. So it's important for us to not kind of sit back and hope our kids get it in Sunday school. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we talk about them in our homes that when we're, we're on the road, when we're, uh, it says when you're on the way, that's a, that's a reference to traveling somewhere. So when you're in your vehicles, you're supposed to talk about the goodness of God and what His law commands of us. It's important for us to make sure that our faith does not end with us. God has given us a mission, He has saved us by great grace, and we need to make sure we honor that. Now let's look at the God who saved us uh, Nineveh meets God. Uh, Nahum's going to do like a a general introduction of Yahweh to the wicked people of Nineveh. He's going to describe God, um, giving attributes of God. In verse 2, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, if someone who, who doesn't believe in God or doesn't know God Came up to you and said, "Tell me about the God you worship." Uh, I, I go out on a limb and say those probably aren't the attributes you would lead out with. Um, you know, three qualities that are mentioned here: are God is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. That's how most of you would describe your exes, right? Um, <laughs> all your exes that live in Texas are jealous, avenging, and wrathful. Some of y'all might describe your dogs that way, right? We we typically wouldn't describe God that way. We would describe God as Holy and loving and merciful. And so how do we reconcile the fact that in the opening of Nahum's prophecy, he says God is jealous and he's avenging and wrathful. Well, first of all, we need to reorient our minds to to understand that these attributes are not inherently sinful or bad. Take jealousy, for example. It's an attribute of exclusivity, which can be a very good thing. In your, if, if you're married, in your marriage relationship, you should desire exclusivity from your spouse. Meaning that they're faithful to you in your marriage and that they don't even have wondering eyes to lust after other people. And so in that sense, jealousy can be a good thing. It's paranoid jealousy that becomes sinful. When we're obsessive about worrying about who our spouses see. And so in the same way, God's not obsessive over this, but he is a jealous God. He demands exclusive worship of him. So he calls us to worship him, not our careers. Worship him, not our families. Worship him, not the stuff that we do or how we spend our time. So jealousy is a good attribute of God. Exodus 20, verse 5, which is the Ten Commandments, as, he's, as God is giving the Ten Commandments and he gives us the second commandment that we should not have uh, idols, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So not only is he jealous, but he carries out revenge or wrath or justice on those who do not obey his law. And again, this, this justice of God is a good attribute. I think when we look at this, when Nahum mentions, by the way, that, that vengeance and revenge, he uses the same Hebrew word three times in verse 2 to say that this is what God does. He brings vengeance. We look at that and we get uncomfortable. How can God be a God of blood and war? How can, how can God be that? That doesn't seem even in, to be congruent with the New Testament. How does that happen? We want God to love everyone. Or at least until we watch the news this past week, right? When we see someone go into a Texas school and murder innocent children, I begin to cry out for justice. When we, uh, I saw a video of a pastor in Indiana who stood up in front of his congregation and confessed to raping a 16-year-old girl, and the congregation comes and prays over him instead of putting him in handcuffs. When I see stuff like that, I get angry, and I cry out for God's justice. And I say, Lord, come quick, bring your kingdom here because the kingdom I'm living in is unfair and unjust. And When we spend a week in the news like we've had just this past week, I'm, for one, am personally thankful for God's wrath and vengeance and justice on the ungodly. It brings glory to him. You see, watching the news is enough to make me real mad real fast. But God is not like me. Look at verse three. Even though God is a jealous God and he's full of vengeance and wrath, verse 3 gives us a critical attribute to pair with that. The Lord is also slow to anger and great in power. And tells us the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So people aren't off the hook. God is not letting justice slip away, but it says that he is patient. He's long-suffering. He, he persists and puts up with a lot of sin in his gracious love toward humanity. His ways in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Do you see the goodness of God here? He's patient and long suffering. Nineveh is going to experience wrath and destruction, but he had put up with their madness for 150 years since he called repentance to them. Even in his patience and long suffering, he's just and he won't clear the guilty. Now, if you're like me, I read the scriptures and I'm like, dang, am I not guilty? My pastor tells me all the time, I'm a jacked up sinner. So if God will by no means clear the guilty, where does that leave us? Well, see, you are a sinner, but you've been made a saint. The the word that's used in the New Testament in Greek is hagios, which means holy. To be holy is what we are called to be. And so we have not just been merely pardoned by the cross. We've been made righteous by the cross. It's important for you to see that. God has not left you in a state of, of, of just nothingness and removed your sin and not added his righteousness. But at the cross, this great substitution happened where Jesus took all the wrath that you deserved upon himself and imputed unto you as all the righteousness that Jesus had. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So those of us who rightly see this and repent and fall at the feet of God asking for forgiveness receive it and not only receive a pardon but also receive righteousness. So we are no longer the guilty. When the the hammer falls on the heavenly gavel the declaration is not guilty by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now Nahum continues to show who God is and show the wrath that's stored up Using poetic imagery in verses four through six, he says, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. But the Lord dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. These are geographical references in Israel. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So when the, when the word of God says, who can stand in front of the righteousness of God and his anger toward our sin? The implication is that no one can stand. The Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord. And so all of us will find our rightful place on our faces before God one day. And it is before us in our lifetimes to decide whether we're going to repent now or repent when it's too late. Nahum uh, was prophesying that Nineveh had delayed that decision and had chosen unwisely. And therefore God's wrath was stored up for them and soon to be delivered. And thanks be to God that this powerful description of him belongs to a God that is good. This kind of power... Belongs in good and righteous hands. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And so as the Creator, God Himself is our moral compass. He is good. Anything apart from His will is evil. He is our stronghold, and He knows your allegiance to Him, whether it is sincere or pretense. The Lord knows who takes refuge in Him. And perhaps Nineveh has some pretenders. Perhaps... Their repentance maybe still had remnants of lingering, but at their hearts, God knew that they were a wicked people, refusing to repent. And so finally, let's look at God meeting Nineveh. The third point is that God meets Nineveh with his wrath, and you'll see that in chapters 2 and 3 kind of unfold in more detail. Uh, for, For us to really rightly understand where in history God meets Nineveh with destruction, because they do get destroyed, um, I want to I paint a timeline of biblical history for you. So you history nerds, lean forward. Uh, those of you that are bored by history, rest your eyes. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Israel began uh, with three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon in a united kingdom. And um, God brought great prosperity, particularly through David and Solomon, uh, to the nation of Israel. Solomon's reign ended in 930 B.C., Um, And so after Solomon's reign, the kingdom was divided. You may have learned about this in in Sunday school class. They were divided into a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and a southern kingdom, which which bore the name of Judah. And um, and so after the division of the kingdom, you had a series of kings, um, some good, some bad, and some in the north and some in the south. Now, Jonah lived 786 to 746 BC, so this is over 200 years after the kingdom is divided. Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. Now, Nineveh was close to the northern kingdom. They were actually bordering states um, with the northern kingdom of Israel. Nineveh at the time was the greatest influence, and it was the rise of the Assyrian Empire, the world power at the time. They were impending upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah goes to them as the greatest enemy of Israel and preaches repentance, and they repent and and bring peace to God's people, but it's short-lived. The Assyrian Empire conquers the northern kingdom in 721 B.C. If you forgot all the dates, let me paint it to you this way. Nineveh conquers God's people 25 years after they repented in Jonah's time. 25 years. That's that's all that their repentance lasted before they decide, we're going to mercilessly enter into this kingdom of God's people and we're going to slaughter them and we're going to export them as slaves. So then God raises up Nahum to prophesy after that from the southern kingdom of Judah. Nahum begins to prophesy against Nineveh and really the Assyrian Empire as a whole. Babylon rises. If you know anything about history, the Babylonian Empire became the world power after the Assyrian Empire. And so the Babylonian Empire um, did indeed conquer the Assyrian Empire and overthrow Nineveh specifically in 612 B.C. After Babylon takes over, eventually the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah is conquered as well. And the deportations took place from 597 to 586 BC. And what this tells us is the timeline of God's people was about 25 years of repentance before God brought judgment on them through Babylon as well. So we see God's enemies spent about 25 years before they refused to pass it on to their children and, and keep repentance in their families and in their kingdom. And God brought judgment on them. And then you would expect different from God's chosen nation Israel, but they do the exact same thing that Nineveh did. And so I want to just call you to drink in all that history and sum it up with this. You that were resting your eyes, wake up and hear me. What what I want to call you to is to make sure that your life is, is very and passionately different than the enemies of God. There are many of us who claim to be of the kingdom of Christ who claim to live in the power of the resurrection and make the gospel central in our lives and in our families. But if you look at who we are, we look exactly like the enemies of God. We value the same things as the enemies of God. We live the same way as the enemies of God, except we might spend an hour worshiping him on Sunday. Don't be a pretender. My goal for my life is that my faith will outlive me. And be imparted to my children and my children's children and their children and their children. That the people around me could not help but be influenced by the gospel because it just overflows out of me at all times. All that we would be a people like that rather than a pretending people. Because the people around us who don't know Christ are described in the Bible as enemies of Christ. Destined for hell whose God's God's wrath rests on them and is stored up for them unless they repent. And God's called you to be a prophet of sorts to them, to bring the good news of Jesus to them, to bring an opportunity of repentance to them like Nineveh had, but Nineveh's second chance wasn't going to happen. And I just want you to ask yourself, where will you be in 25 years? If you look at that span of repentance, where will you be in 25 years? Some of you older folks in the room like, hopefully with Jesus You younger folks, what's, what's the next 25 years look like for your life? Where are your values placed, and are they in the proper priority? What will your children or grandchildren be doing in 25 years, and what impact will your testimony have on that? I don't know about you, but I long for the meaning of my life to last more than a couple decades and a couple generations. I mean, think about this. You probably know your grandparents, You know your great-grandparents? That's when you start to, I know who they were, but maybe didn't actually meet them or know them. What about your great-great-grandparents? It starts to get real fuzzy then. If we talk great-great-great-grandparents, I would imagine most of us in the room would have no clue who those people are. But did the values that they imparted in their family that got passed down, Do they remain? That would be my hope, that the gospel impact lasts that long. For Nineveh, it was short-lived, And because of their lack of commitment to it, there's a judgment pronounced on them. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Nahum says, coming for you, Nineveh, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. This is probably a reference to the king of Nineveh, living in a different legacy than the king of Nineveh in Jonah's time, who led the nation to repent. This king was called a worthless counselor, but a kingdom that God was establishing would have a new king named Jesus, who would be called a wonderful counselor. Verses 12-13, through Nahum gives a direct quote of God. He says, thus says the Lord... And he speaks to Judah, by the way. This is directed to Judah. He says, Though they being Ninevites, though they are full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. You see, Judah had sinned in this too. Nineveh was wicked, but Judah had made their alliance, militarily speaking, with Nineveh. They had become a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. To preserve their own safety, they had stopped hoping in their God and began hoping in the military might of the Assyrian Empire. And God is saying, I'm going to take away that tethering. I'm going to take away those bonds. They're going to be broken and burst apart. What this shows us is that even when God's people are faithless, not doing what they ought to do, God is still faithful to those of us who have placed our hope in him. O. Palmer Robinson, a a, um, theologian, wrote commentary on this passage, and he says, Whoever might prove to be the arch enemy of God's people in future generations could be sure from Nineveh's experience that God would destroy them and deliver his people. God remains vitally concerned for his people and all their afflictions. When the right time comes for their deliverance, he shall break them free from all oppression. We are God's people. The New Testament calls us Israel. That we have been grafted in and adopted in God's good family. And so we see news of heartbreak and atrocities like we have this week. And it makes us yearn, God, when will you bring justice? And we can see in history and in present times that God is close to his people and his heart breaks at injustice. And he is one who is bringing justice to us. He's bringing destruction to his enemies. And it's a comfort to his people. Verse 14 says, the Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. There's no opportunity to dodge the judgment of God. This is the message that Nahum proclaimed. And this is what we proclaim to a world that doesn't know Christ today. There is no opportunity to dodge the judgment of God. Everyone will stand before him and then fall to their faces before him and be judged based on what they did with the cross, what they did with Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now It's it's, it's not super clear in verse 15 who this messenger on the mountain is. We're told he has pretty feet probably got pedicures and stuff. So it says that he has beautiful feet um, and the feet of him who brings good news. Isaiah 52 used the same language, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says Design, your God reigns. This language of a, a prophet on the mountain, uh, it could have been a descriptor of the Lord himself, Um, It could have been a descriptor of Nahum. I think it's more likely a symbolic announcer of good news. Anyone who would proclaim the good news of the one true God. And given the occasion of Nineveh's soon coming demise, the good news is that the overlord of God's people would be done away with. It reminds me of uh, the Wizard of Oz when the house falls on the witch and all those little people start singing about it. Like you ever think, like there was a boardroom meeting at one point, and some guy speaks up and he's like, "I've got an idea for a children's movie. It begins with a house falling on a lady, and everyone sings in joy about it." The guy's like, "I like it. Let's make it happen. Call Judy Garland, right?" Um, we have this wonderful, joyful song. You know, the, the the wicked witch is dead. The reason they're so joyful is because they're free from her oppression. And this is what we longingly await for as God's people is that we will be freed from oppression by the crushing of God's enemies. It's not wrong to hope for that. But, but as New Testament people, we actually are turned by the cross to our greatest enemy, which is not some nation. It's not like we interpret all the prophecy of like America versus the world and who's the wicked nations that God is going to punish. We are actually lifted our eyes to something higher so that we see that our greatest enemy is sin itself. Directly from hell and Satan, that sin is the greatest nation that rises against us and God has promised to crush it. God has promised to do away with our great oppressor. Every temptation you face, every sin that you can't get free from, God has promised to cut those bonds and set you free from it. And we can rejoice at God's wrath coming against sin. It's good news for us, church. This is why Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 10, quoted Nahum chapter 1. He said, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That the calling upon Nahum is a calling upon all believers today. We're called to have beautiful feet, whether you get pedicures or not. We are called to proclaim good news to a world that right now is an enemy of God. We're called to take repentance to them and show them how to repent and show them who God truly is. And I just want you to ask yourself, how are you doing at that? Nahum uses the language when he speaks to Judah. In verse 15, he says, keep your feast, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. The feast is a reference to all the law that God had given. He had given them a list of feasts. We outlined those when we went through the book of Leviticus. He gave them multiple feasts that they were supposed to put in their calendar and use for worship and honor of him. Keep your feasts. For the New Testament believer, this is keep coming to the Lord's table. Keep gathering on the Lord's day, Sunday after Sunday, to lift your voices to a good God, to come to his table, to remember Jesus' body and blood that was broken and poured out for you, to remember his resurrection and anticipate his second coming. Keep doing that. In anticipation of the day when God will fully throw down sin and also fulfill your vows. Y'all are like, well, what vow do I need to keep? Well, Jesus gave you a great commission. He called you to go into all people with this good news. He called you to have beautiful feet and go and preach the gospel to people who have not heard it all around you. Maybe people have heard it, but it's beginning to fall on deaf ears and they need to see it through your life as you proclaim it to them with your lips. Keep your feasts, Christians. Fulfill your vows, Christians. Be those with beautiful feet who go with a desire to make Christ known. Because he is the great fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and he is the commissioner of New Testament Christians as we go out as prophets. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.